everybody. Welcome to another episode of Flow Forward. This is your host here, Rob. I have with me tonight, Catrice is here. Hi, Catrice. Hi. Hi. Cavour is here. Hi. That's that's good energy. All right. Mark's here. Hi, Mark. Hello. And we have more Deep. Energy. What? More energy. Yes, more energy. And we have Deep Anyway here. And Hello. Hey, And we're going to be talking about their new project on Kickstarter right now. Go look at it right this second. Mnemonic, a weevil, a weevils, a weaver's al almanac. I'm sure it's got weevils in it too, you know, but that's the next project. Uh, <laughs> more stress goals. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about bugs boring into wood and stuff. Mnemonic. We're going to talk about it. It's, it looks really cool. Um, so D, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Awesome. Um, tell us about Mnemonic. Uh, give us an elevator pitch and um, how's it been going so far with the game? So it's been going really well. Um, it's been kind of a roller coaster of a couple of weeks so far. Um, we're currently sitting at, I'm looking at our Kickstarter page right now, where we're at like $19,000 uh, and we need $21,000 to secure our funding, which is really exciting. We're at like 91%. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a slow burn, but we're, we're definitely moving towards our goal and I'm really excited about that. Um, a little bit about mnemonic, um, it's a fantasy setting that I've been developing on my own and in my head and on various discord servers and message boards for about 12 years. Mm. Uh, it started as an idea of like what if I had to spend experience points for something and what would that mean for like my character to like mm -hmm. lose those experience points? And then it kind of spiraled into this setting where memory itself has power. Um, and so now it's a full fledged setting where memory is like a force of the world. The world itself has memory. Uh, and so we can interact with it. We can play with it. We can, bend it to our needs. We can ask it for help if we need to. Um, and now we've got this game that you can play. The rules are there. So I'm really excited you can about it. Basically yeah. remember things that you haven't experienced yourself, but somebody else has experienced in the world kind of remembers for you. So yeah. from the sounds of it. Yeah, it's like uh, you t when you, it, the, pr the process of weaving is, uh, you tap into the world's memories. Uh, and so sometimes they're your own memories from childhood or from last week. Uh, but then other times you'll be someplace where the the world has a, a strong memory of something that happened a year ago or two years ago or 200 years ago or a thousand years ago of something that, you know, might not even be in any of your history books, uh, but it was something that the world decided to hold on to. And yeah, it's it's a it's a cool setting. I like playing in it. That's cool, man. How how does the how do characters interact with the with the memories? Do they or are there what kind of mechanics do you use? So, it, there, there's a a few different ways to interact with the world. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's a number of games in mnemonic. 
uh, like Cracks in the Mirror is uh, just a series of questions that you answer with your friends. Uh, and the, the questions are like, you feel a, a tickling at the edge of your mind, a, uh, you know, a, a memory is calling to you and uh, you can interact with it however you want to. And this moment is yours to shape however you want. Um, for this Weaver's Almanac, we've got four different ways of playing, um, but they all kind of fit around uh, weaving as uh, it is specifically magic. You are specifically using magic to solve a problem. Um, and so when you use magic, we ask you the question of what is the memory that you tap into? Well, what does it look like? Uh, what do the people around you think about this thing that mm -hmm. you just did? Um, and then you roll dice to see what memories the world chooses to lend you. Ooh, interesting. Pretty good. Um, yeah. So I have an immediate question here, because mm -hmm. you'd mentioned that the you'd originally been thinking about like the idea of like experience, like if you spent experience and you could lose it, like this actually kind of makes sense that it would transition into memories. Like, do you lose your memories when you, when you spend them? And the other one is, well, which came first, the experience concept or like the memories, like which one caused the other? <laughs> So this is kind of a, a fun origin story. Uh, I was in a, I don't remember if it was Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was Dungeons and Dragons. And I was in a, a it was like a sci-fi campaign where all of the magic in the world was psionics. It was, it was all psionics all the time. Mm -hmm. And our our DM said, but you can also be a magic user, but magic is really rare and it, uh, you know, it, it basically doesn't exist. And I said, well, obviously I want that. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and so I had this idea of like a character, he was a, a vampire who is like 8,000 years old. And so he comes from like the time when magic was more common. Um, mm. And the DM was like, I love this idea. But you can't use magic because, like, the power source that, like, powers magic is gone. So if you're going to use magic, it has to, like, come from inside yourself. And so we worked out that hmm. casting a spell not only would use a spell slot, it would also cost experience points. So if I wanted to, like, cast magic missile, I had to, like, spend 200 experience points to do it. Huh. Which was wild. Because uh, yeah. magic missile, in the grand scheme of things, is not that powerful a spell. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly not, not really. experience points worth. But it got me thinking about like, well, what would this mean for my character to like make that choice and make that mm -hmm. sacrifice? And so it, it very quickly became like, well, experience is like the things that teach you how to like do stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. What if it's like literally giving up memories? Uh, and so it was kind of like every time he cast a spell, it was like I would write a little vignette of the memory that he was giving up to do it. Cool. And so that's, that's kind of, yeah, that's that's where it started. Um, there's no experience points in Mnemonic now, and I, I don't deal with memory loss as like a mechanic anymore because mm -hmm. um, it kind of gets squeaky um, real fast. Um, 
but that's yeah that's the that's the origin story of like what led me on this magical journey <laughs> no that makes a lot of sense especially like D&D, you memorize spells. This is basically yeah. reverse memorization. <laughs> it actually oh, yeah. made sense. I can see where you came up with it. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are the players mostly doing in mnemonic? Uh, like, what's their, is there a main thrust for the game? Or is it sort of like, here's some mechanics for interacting with a world uh, and go crazy? Uh, so each there's four session frameworks, um, mm -hmm. and if you are if you're most familiar with D and don't know if your uh, listeners are most familiar mm -hmm. with D and D or other games, but uh, in the context of D and D, like a session framework would be like the combat rules. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got the the first gathering, which is like you all meet in this place, introduce yourselves create your characters and then we'll play through a couple of scenes to like get to know each other. Um, and that session is structured so that you can play it beginning to end without rolling any dice and without playing any cards. Um, so it's like, all I've got is the book, got our friends, let's play some mnemonic and we'll set some scenes and we'll kind of get a feel of what this world looks like. Hmm, okay. uh, Into the gray is about building specific scenes. And each scene has, uh, you draw a card. Uh, the card tells you um, kind of the difficulty of the challenge that you're facing. Uh, and then based on the suit, you roll a certain number of dice to see if you can like overcome the challenges of that scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if you can match the card with the dice that you roll, then great. You, finish your task, no problem. Um, if you can't, then you can roll additional dice by accepting costs. And a cost could be like, I break my arm, or mm -hmm. uh, I lose my shield, or I fall down a well and I have to get back up. Um, okay. th those costs are up to you. They're kind of in the narrative layer. Um, but the overall thrust of it is like you're exploring a place you're meeting people you're helping them solve problems um you might be trying to get somewhere um and that's kind of what that session is about okay and then deck burner is um i like to describe it as that scene in a cartoon show where we're all on our way to uh go and attack the big bad evil boss mm -hmm. in their tower and we have to like fight our way through their armed guards and uh big dragon buddies uh and we occasionally meet our rivals along the way and we have to deal with that um it's like a, a big gauntlet of challenges that you play through very quickly um and it's a lot of fun. We played through it on actual play a couple of weeks ago, and it was it was a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, and it and it culminates in a boss fight, which is uh, always really fun to play out. And then the last session framework is laid to rest, which is uh, it's a short one, but it you're meant to take your time with it, um, and it's for saying goodbye. Uh, mm. So. One application could be we've finished the story that we're telling and we're saying goodbye to the story and the place that we're in. Um, 
But another application for it, and this is kind of where it started, is someone in our group is no longer with us. Uh, like someone mm -hmm. died in our fight with the big, bad, evil mm -hmm. uh, boss, and we have to deal with mourning them uh, and saying goodbye to them before we move on. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a, a quiet kind of game full mm. of reflection. Yeah. So each of each of the frameworks is uh, like it gives you the tools to interact with the world and with each other, um, but they also act as kind of like it's a a well-oiled machine that mm -hmm. once you get going from the the start, you can play pretty much all the way through to the end without having to wonder what we're supposed to do next. Um, because when I when I play role playing games, sometimes I get stuck in the. But how do I actually play? How do mm -hmm. I how do you roll? How do you role play? Uh, <laughs> yeah, how do you role play? Yeah, how do how do I how do I tell a story with my friends when uh, the rules don't tell us what a story is or how we're supposed to do it? Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the times we we make it up as we go along, and that's great. When I sat down to write a game, I was like, but what if it's not that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little structure can go a long way in like it doesn't have to be super specifically laid out, but the idea of like here are the basic steps to go through, like something to nudge you in the right direction or give inspiration is probably rather helpful. Yeah. I, so I oh go ahead sorry I, I was just gonna say I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need a system I, for it, so I'd hope. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think we all. I mean, what, go ahead. Mark. What did you find were were your challenges in trying to create that structure for for players? And your like, was it more communicating to the players as a whole or to the game master that would run the game? Like, what what was your approach, and how did you how did you take that for mnemonic? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest challenge is getting the text to speak for the game master because mm -hmm. um, the because a lot of my games uh, uh, start with the assumption that you don't have anyone facilitating the game um, mm -hmm. that you can just play it with a group of players and then the text serves as that facilitation um, and so you kind of have to be very careful with the with the text that you use to make sure that uh, when the players read it, everybody's on the same page, and that uh, you know everyone brings their own assumptions and biases and baggage with right. them. Um, sure. You want to make sure that they're uh, able to deal with those things as they come up um, in a way that's healthy. Right, that makes sense. So, so I checked out your um your itch page, your itch.io page, and I saw some of these games previously. So were these games all sort of like parted out, and you were kind of examining different ways to interact with mnemonic before joining them all together, or is it sort of the plan from the beginning? You're going to have this tiered, um, sort of uh, sort of a bounded loop where you have a beginning, middle, and end, or beginning two middles and ends. It sounds like, um, or maybe beginning, middle, end, epitaph, maybe, um, and was that always sort of the goal or did that sort of arise organically from how the games sort of developed? It kind of came out of uh, 
de developing them uh, and just kind of like as I was writing them, uh, I, I'm also a playwright. Um, mm. I and a lot of my my formal academic training uh, mm. is in theater, and so um, when I sat down and wrote, I guess starting with the unfolk, uh, I like it. It just came out as like a, a story, like a, a full structured story and then cracks in the mirror was like okay uh there's a beginning a middle and an end what do, what do each of those things look like um so it kind of just like came out that way and then when i sat down and was like all right i want to do like the mnemonic core game experience mm -hmm. uh and i was like well i've got this structure of like mm -hmm. beginning middle and end and then what comes after what if i just ran with that yeah, I mean, that sounds pretty much like you were, you know, f just making pieces so that the game would run. Yeah. And then we're just like, oh, yeah, this actually does work. Let me just refine and sort of bracket the the individual pieces. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. Interesting. Um, in the... Uh, hmm. I was trying to figure out how to ask this. Uh, for the different kinds of structure you have, so it sounds like like ones the first one's mostly about setup and establishing things, mm -hmm. and the second two are like I, I'm a little hazy on what happens in those. So the deck burners like you have built up a bunch of stuff, and now this is your turn to like make it all go kablooey. And <laughs> kind <we're>, of. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. So is the setting, the session prior to that, the end of the gray, that's the kind of the build up, like, let's get our narrative sort of going. And then once we have like all of our, um, all of dominoes set up, now we're going to flick them with the next section, the deck burner, right? Yeah, uh, I think, I think that's a good way to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, into the gray is definitely, it's like, build a bunch of scenes, explore the world. Um, but the the structure of Into the Gray says, all right, as you explore the world, you're going to be filling in these holes. Right. Uh, like um, when you find a jack of a suit, you're then defining that jack for your mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. And when you find a queen of a suit, you're defining that character in the story too um and that happens in into the gray so that when you get to those cards in deck burner you already know who this jack is mm, uh, okay you have some context for who this ally is or who this rap rival is um you have a sense of like who this uh adversary is that you're working your way towards in in that final confrontation interesting yeah, so I, I like to think of it as like deck burner is the dungeon crawl mm -hmm. and into the gray is the city outside the dungeon. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so for the for the for when you're doing into the gray, do you like draw cards and then like write on the cards or do you have like a chart that you're um like have have correspondences on or how how do you work that? Um you don't write on the cards. I mean you could get a you very much could. That's interesting. <laughs> That's uh, what Mark does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you you very much could write on the cards if you want to like decorate them to like uh, 
make notes on them. Um, mm -hmm. I think if I were making a recommendation to players, um, I would say have like a journal um, and then just when you draw a card, uh, especially if it's like a face card, um, like a jack, queen, king, ace, or joker, uh, write down what suit it was, the name of the person that you encountered, and any other details that you find helpful. Um, and then that way, when you get to deck burner, you'll have that as a reference. Interesting. Okay. So it's basically, so when you're going through into the gray, you're kind of like building, you're kind of like building an encounter chart or like, uh, um, some something analogous to that, and then yeah. when you get deck builder, you started like drawing like, oh, we're facing this guy now, and like he's got they they've got these kind of like extra minions because we drew this card. Is it kind of like that? Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the it, it's it's interesting to think about uh, deck burner as a dungeon crawl mm -hmm. with a lot of like combat because it's the resolution mechanic is very straightforward. Um, oh. it's like it? uh, okay, so. You draw cards you, in deck burner. You draw cards from the deck, and mm -hmm. if it's a number card, you keep drawing cards, and you keep drawing until you mm -hmm. get to a face card. When you get to a face card, all of the card, all the numbers that you drew up until that point, you lay those out on the table, and then you roll between one and three dice, and you use those dice to try and match as many of those cards as you can. Oh, so, oh interesting. Okay. So, like, if I have like a five and an eight and a seven as cards on the table mm -hmm. and then i roll two dice and i roll a three and a five then okay i can add the three and the five together to get eight so mm -hmm. i can match the five and the eight but i can't match the seven so oh. i scored two points and then the enemy scores one point because i couldn't match that card and then two against one i win the fight is there like some sort of concession you have to give for the enemy getting something or leaving stuff on the table like that uh the you come out of it with um, points, and then the mm -hmm. points add up at the end to uh, tell you whether or not you win the boss fight. Okay, interesting. And then if you don't have enough points, you lose the boss fight, uh, which mm. can be bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and there's there's ways to like mitigate or avoid losing that fight, um, but that's the that's kind of the the th the overarching. Like there's, there, it's not like you're not making attack rolls. There's no hit points. It's okay. tell us who wins this fight. Got we, it. Okay, we'll so you take care of like the whole battle in like one roll, for example, or or, yeah. or okay, interesting. How do um, how do do multiple players can they work on the same like encounter, or is it sort of like you're being challenged by this? Here's your challenge. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like you take turns uh, dealing with. The encounters that you're facing and when you've got the focus it's like you get to tell us how this fight goes um, oh, cool. so like in our game last uh not last week the week before that uh on actual play uh we had one player who misha only drew jacks <laughs> and nobody else drew jacks <laughs> and so it was like rival after rival after rival for her character and it tells a very interesting story when mm -hmm. your character has all these people from your past that are coming up and you have to deal with them and uh, they're locking you in a burning building, for example. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That's that's interesting in scare quotes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's a, it's a, it's a certain definition of fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> May you live but, in interesting yeah. times. It's supposed to be yeah. a curse. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, pretty interesting outside right now. I don't know if you've been paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, Out of curiosity, what are some of the uh, um, mitigating factors that you said? Because, like, as you described right now, it sounded almost like pure luck. But it sounds like you have things that you can do to influence it. Yeah. Um, so if things don't go your way, you have three options. It's been a while since I looked at it. Um, it's always it's fun, like a- getting getting in the in the middle version when you're like, wait a second, is that still a rule? I can't remember is, if that's still a rule. Is this is this in the core doc or is this in the? Um, sure. So there's three different ways that you can, uh, I call it changing the outcome. Um, one is uh, you just re-roll. Uh, I'm sorry. What's I'm sorry. I, I, I just was looking at the part of the document. Altering the outcome, yeah, you can change your lock. Would you, uh, yeah, and then you tell you how things almost and then how fate didn't change. Then you have a terrible cost, which you can talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess everyone's just reading the document. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, easier than trying to remember a game about memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah oh, yeah, we. Your luck, which is yes, we. You re roll the dice. You can just, you know, the dice are in abstraction. So you can just say, I don't like that. And I'm going to re roll it and try for something better. Uh, that's totally allowed. Uh, you can accept a terrible cost, which is basically you die, um, but then you win the fight. Hmm. Um, so you always have the choice to end your character's career in some way or form, and just hmm. remove them from the narrative. Um, and if you do that, not only do you win the, the fight that you're in right now, but you also score enough points so that your whole group wins the confrontation at the end. Um, huh. Basically, like your character is not going to be in the story anymore, and that should mean something. So don't mm-hmm. do it lightly. But if you do, we want to make sure that it has an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third way is weaving, which is the magic part. Um, so when you want to weave, uh, you can ask another player to choose one of the 13 weaver's dice, and they pick a die, you roll it, and then you just score extra points in the fight. Uh, and then, yeah. So you have a heroic sacrifice kind of mm-hmm. set up, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. What does the player do after that? They, they just sidelined and they can watch like they can't make a new character or anything it's just basically well we removed you or is it just that character has been removed from the story you can add a new one yeah it's uh what i like to say is that uh when we play mnemonic we don't play the heroes of the story we play the storytellers um Mm. so if you've created a character and you decide to remove them from the story uh, you're still playing, um, which means that you can still frame scenes. Uh, you can introduce a new character if you want to. 
Um, but you're, you you still get a turn uh, in Deckburner and in Into the Gray. Uh, it's just uh, you no longer have that character that you created. Um, okay, you know, it's, sense. Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing, and I I you know if you're if you're a player and you're thinking, oh well, this is the easy way to win the game. Uh, I want you to sit with that decision for a second because like presumably you care about your character. Um, and I don't want anyone doing mm -hmm. that lately. Right. Mm -hmm. Is, is there, um, oh, go ahead, Kat. I was just going to ask if there was any mechanics that help to ensure that the players care about their characters, or is this just a hope that they will? Well, I always hope that people care about the characters they're, they're creating. Um, but the process of character creation is uh, asking questions that are designed to get the player thinking about who their character is on the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, like we start with questions about uh, the lie that your community has tried to make you believe about yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, things like I speak too much or I don't try hard enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we go into questions about the masks that we wear uh, and the the things that we wear that change the shape of our shadow and our silhouette. Mm. Um, so if you have a, a cloak or a cape and all of these things come with optional questions that ask you to like dig a little bit deeper and put these answers in context of who your character is in the world. Uh, you know, players don't have to dig too deep if they are not comfortable with that. Um, Bleed is always a concern, um, you know, mm -hmm. where you start to feel the things that your character is feeling, and that's not always fun. Um, mm -hmm. But those questions are there to offer that opportunity. Yeah, that's I interesting. Find it a little odd that you gave two negative examples of lies that people are being told about who they are by society, and it's like my immediate thoughts were actually positive lies, like. I am a good person. Or, <sighs> yes, these people really were evil and terrible and they needed to die. It's really interesting that you say that uh, <laughs> because every time I've played this game, uh, that's my instinct too. Is, <laughs> I think, what if there was a question of like, what lie have you told yourself that the world would be better if you disbelieved? <laughs> mm. uh, and the question would be like, I don't talk enough, mm -hmm. or I alone can fix this. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just the thing that it's like, yeah, there is like stuff like imposter syndrome, for example, yeah. where it's like, I don't feel like I'm actually doing good enough. And it's like, there might be mountains of evidence otherwise, but I mean, that doesn't happen too often. It's usually people lying to themselves that something is better than it is because you don't normally have to lie to yourself to tell yourself that things are bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends, right? I mean, it's less, I mean, we could go down a deep rabbit hole on that one. That's a, that's a four hour psychology lecture. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. <laughs> um, but let's not do that on on like, uh, lighthearted RPG chat. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's the nature of a game like this. It is, and this yeah. basically is 
a psychology exam mm-hmm. that you're 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 giving yourself. Yeah. yeah. There's I mean, that's kind of a good thing though. There's mm-hmm. build on that. There's an interesting mechanic. So I'm just going through the, the core preview book right now. Um, and I I really like what you did with the different dice, where you have mm-hmm. a fire die, a rain die, and each one does something uh, a little different that you can choose to roll. Um, and it looks like you've got some guests that have contributed their own dice to the game, which I think is brilliant. The one uh, that real really... quick, they're not guests like the the people writing those different dice. They're the other members of the core team. I see. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. A big team. Yeah, you have, you have a really nice team. I, I was going through that. Uh, that section of your Kickstarter as well. It looks like you have a lot of people that have contributed and worked on this that yeah. uh, made this shine. Um, but uh, what I was getting at was the the gray die. Um, so I'll read the description of uh, when this comes up. It says, uh, when you roll the gray die, bad things always happen. We do not expect you to roll this die. Next line, you are not allowed to roll this die. Next line, do not roll this die. Um, and I love this. And this is part of what fits into the this psychology experiment that you're you're undergoing. Um, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on, on including a die like this in your game. Uh, what what does it tell about the sort of stories that that mnemonic uh, is is going for? It's uh, the gray die is tricky. Um, it's one of those things that like it exists as a piece of lore more than as a mechanic. Um, like if you compare that to like the previous page talks about the green die and says, uh, when you roll the green die, the result is always weave. Um, the gray die doesn't tell you the mechanics for what happens. Um, and, and well, you're that's not supposed to roll it. So why would... you're not supposed to roll it. So why would I tell you what happens when you roll it? Um, in, in the world, like the yeah. thing somebody has to do, you told me not to do it. So I have to do it on principle. Yep. <laughs> right. That's on you, I, not them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and as soon as she saw it, Misha in our game on actual play was like, I want to roll it. Exactly. Roll it. <laughs> uh-huh. it made me think of that uh, the legacy um, uh, pandemic, I think, uh, legacy game mechanic where there was just this envelope that just says, do not open this envelope. Oh, it was Risk. The first, uh, so the Risk Legacy under the bottom of the box, if you lifted up the tray with all the stuff in it, on the bottom was like an envelope taped to the bottom. It's like, don't open this ever. Right. And and yeah. it's it's been a point of like, well, now I need to open this envelope because right. I need to know what this does. Um, and I, I really love that aspect of like, you're you're reaching beyond what the game is and and grabbing the player and pulling on the strings of the players to say like well this is your investment this is like i i've got you now as a player not just as a character who's built into this this lore mm-hmm. this fiction the the mechanics themselves are are intriguing and grabbing your your curiosity which i i really love thank you it it is meta gaming by definition but not mm-hmm. in a bad way like it's not oh i'm going to use outside knowledge to make sure that i win it's more i as a player am making decisions that my character would not i am intentionally putting them into terrible positions uh-huh. or not necessarily oh well, i mean if you got rid of your character because you did like your heroic sacrifice and then you just wanted to mess with everybody else. Oh no, I might have found a loophole. 
<laughs> now, what struck me about the gray die is that you have a thing like the first second phase of the game is called into the gray. So presumably for me, it was like, oh, the gray day does something with that, with that all kinds of like fuzzy, like stuff that's out there in the grayness. So like, to me, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Cause that's like an opportunity to go back into that thematically go backwards. Like it's a, it, it, to me, it felt like a rewind type thing almost, or mm -hmm. that could be used that way. Obviously it's not, but like that, that was the connection that I made, um, when I saw that. So I thought that was pretty interesting that you're referencing in a different mm, subsection of the game, a previous section, but not saying how mm -hmm. just, there's just a, like, this is gray. Also, this is gray. We're not going to tell you why. And, uh, I love that shit. So nice. <laughs> the, uh, the most powerful weaver in the world of mnemonic is known as the gray mage. Mm. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you, what they did that earned the name of the gray die but the two things are related <laughs> uh very yeah. cool i uh i i really enjoy this idea of um like again building on what rob said about how that second segment of the game is the into the gray mm -hmm. because i think um in terms of storytelling and pacing, you're you're able to really construct a story by breaking it into these four sessions of what tone you're going to get, what kind of experience you're going to have from playing it, and in a way that I think not many other RPGs tackle, you are mechanically sort of creating different story beats by by really having these distinct moments in each one. Um, do you do you feel that there are certain things that you aim for from Into the Gray um, that sort of have a different tone or a different way of playing than something like Deckburner or Laid to Rest that um, you, your advice to the GM would be different in how to approach um, that, that particular segment of the game? Yeah. Um... There aren't any. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, there is no GM, but oh, it, I, yeah. I guess the players. But it's yeah. like it's more like every player is the GM of their own yeah. scene, right? Right. Yeah, it's uh, distributed, right? It's like a distributed. Yeah. I, I usually because it seems like even in GMless games, like the duties don't go away; they just get distributed right. out. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, the, the GM advice section moved to the players is is what I <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, it's so deck burner is um, very high stakes. Uh, we are moving towards an objective that is coming towards us as well. Um, mm -hmm. So like it's, you know, we're racing against uh, not necessarily time, but it's, it, there's the expectation of that. Like if we don't do something now, things will get immediately bad um, into the gray. Yeah. Oh, no, just going to say, like, so it sounds like urgency is, like, a, a main feature of that kind of... Yeah, and, yeah, like, okay. the, the way that that's conveyed in the mechanics is when you draw numbered cards in Into the Gray, you deal with each numbered card. Right. Each numbered card is a scene. It presents mm -hmm. you with its own challenges. In Deckburner, we don't care about the numbered cards. We just draw them and move on, draw them and move right. on until we get to the uh -huh. face cards. Um, 
Into the Gray is much lower stakes, but it lets you deal with more intimate moments um, <clears throat> because each card represents a scene. And mm -hmm. each of those scenes might not come up ever again, but it's a chance for you as a player to like explore some piece of your character and flesh out a part of the world. Um, and yeah, it's a it, it if there's if there's four pillars to the game of mnemonic, um, deck burner is the boss fight mm -hmm. urgency. Mm -hmm. um, into the gray is the exploration phase and uh the uh first gathering and laid to rest are the um bookends right interesting yeah cool yeah yeah i, I so <clears throat> and then character creation happens as a part of the first gathering mm -hmm. right so it doesn't there's no outside character creation that you have to bring in order to start a session right Mm -hmm. Zero prep. That's my, that's my objective. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally, totally I'm on board with that. I, I mean, you know, several of us are like in yeah. terms of our designs. Yeah. It's, it's, um, but yeah, I like. You have to the... specify several, not all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all about like in-depth character creation because, because her I, game I... is all about like the arc of the character. So you need like a, a, a well-established starting point for them. So yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, they both I, I definitely like, have their fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love digging into character creation. I spent uh, most of my early gaming, quote unquote, career mm -hmm. as a college student and high school student, um, just like making characters. Oh yeah, and just it's like a lot playing. Of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking the pieces and see how they fit together, mm -hmm. uh, and like making. That. Trying to make like weird, like, oh, does the game let me do this thing? And like, oh, it does. And it's a surprising and strange result. Neat. Yeah. 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 Isn't it great just having like a stack of like sheets of paper and it's just like characters that you're never going to use? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll never get to play my dual whip wielding Thrycreen. So sad. <laughs> someday. 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 <laughs> All six whips going at once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I had a half dragon, half fiend uh, character with a scythe nice. that was super, super cool, like way cool. And I played them for like about a week mm -hmm. before the campaign fell apart. Oh, <laughs> isn't that the way it always goes? You yeah. start a character, oh. and like, yeah, we're not meeting this week, and then you're like, we're not meeting next week, and we're not meeting. And it's like, oh, I really okay. wanted to do more. Yeah, I'll put this one away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it goes, man. We, I think we all have like those sort of like epitaph characters that we wish we had gotten to like just get. We just want to get to this one cool arc that I know they have in their story, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity, so in, in in the way you've got mnemonic set up, it's got like these four distinctive sections. Do each of these sections are they meant to take up like a full session a piece or multiple sessions, or are you supposed to cram all of them into the same one? Or oh God. is there any kind of setup? Uh, I do not recommend trying to get through all four session frameworks in one sitting. Uh, <laughs> It would be. It would take a very long time. Um, 
The question of how many sessions is each framework is an interesting one. The first gathering you could do in one session, um, three hours. You could definitely do in, do it in four hours. Um, you could do it in two if you're going really fast. Um, Into the Gray is designed to you play it until you don't want to play it anymore. Um, mm, okay. Because there's a certain point where it's like we've done all the exploration that we are interested in. Um, and so like, maybe it's one session, maybe you want to go through the whole deck and it takes five sessions to do it. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of up to you, up to your group to decide. And then deck burner, you should be able to get through it in one sitting. Um, but if it ends up going to two or three, you know, if you're getting really into these action sequences and spending a lot of time with each moment, um, that's that's fine too. Late to the late to rest is uh, it's meant to be a single session. Um, so, all told, if you did each session framework all the way through once, it could take you between four sessions and like ten. That's pretty comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like like um, I know. So one of the more successful games that I've run recently was um, Shadow of the Demon Lord, which kind of like has a de facto 10 session structure because it's got 10 levels in it and you're kind of meant to level up once a session and that it works really well because the pacing feels good you know and yeah. so like you know looking for that pacing is something that i think a lot of games try and manage in weird ways like sometimes they try and do it an ad hoc way through like how fast character advancement goes and mm -hmm. then that never really works for me like when i'm running them and so like having a having a built-in session pacer or something where you can um, modulate like a little bit, like how fast the story is moving. I think it's yeah. a pretty nice way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's um the other nice thing about it is that uh, you can I can then point to the story arcs that we provide and say each story arc is ten sessions worth of content. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, our book is going to have 26 story arcs in it. Um, oh, awesome. You do the math. Uh, <laughs> well, you're for a couple of years, potentially. Yeah. yeah, if you wanted to play through all 26, it would take about, I think, four years if you played mm -hmm. once a week. Ah, once a night. Let's do this. Let's, go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do them all in a year. Yeah. As, as craziest twitch rpg thing ever we're just gonna go oh as gosh. fast as we can yeah yeah fun, though. to be to be fair i mean like usually the biggest limitation is people's schedules not lining yeah. up and right now we've kind of got like you know the whole lockdown thing it's like what else are you gonna do yeah there's that yeah yeah it's um so i'm, I'm kind of curious like where did the um it looks like at some point in the rules, you had a totally different magic system. And there's some things in the Kickstarter where you had like, uh, shoot, I don't remember where I should have taken a note, but there was, oh man, maybe I was reading one of the previous games on itch where it was, yeah. it was a different, it was, I, I remember reading it and then I'm going and then reading this, um, the uh, almanac version and going like, Oh, this is totally different from the previous thing. And, and if you, you, could you talk a little bit about how 
the versions of the game as you started building them maybe diff like differentiated themselves or sort of uh, grew into the almanac version yeah um so at, at one point late last year i said uh that i wasn't going to ever write a game where you could use magic in mnemonic <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that sure panned out well didn't it oh yeah yeah <laughs> Well, because the problem is when I say things, suddenly I start thinking about them. A <laughs> <laughs> oh, deadly curse. Oh, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. We're, I think we're all in the same boat there where we go, oh, no, I could never do that. And you go, oh, oh but could oh, I know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you literally uh, currently, just currently. yourself? Sorry, come on. Well, I'd like to point out that my current most written game is one that I made as a joke to, to prove a point and i think that's about all i have to say currently since i play testing it i don't know uh, i mean yeah but these they've it's almost like you gave yourself your own gray die your big red button do not press mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, well, I, I recontextualized why I was thinking of magic as like a transgressive act, right? Because mm-hmm. um, because for a while it was like the people who use ma- magic that like the mages, the quote unquote capital M mages of mnemonic, are people who uh, were able to tap into the world's memory and then bend it to their will, and so that act of like using magic in that way is a a transgressive thing to do. Um, And sometime in the last year, I found a way to think of it in terms of, okay, but how would someone work with the world's memory um, so that it becomes more of a, a cooperative or collaborative thing? And I think and I'm not sure about this, but I think that the way that we've got it set up now where you ask another player to choose a die for you is a good way to set that up. Because it makes it more of a, like the world is choosing to give you this power rather than you're taking it for yourself. I see. Is this a relatively new thing? Like in terms of the world's history, like the world actually granting people memories like is this something that just basically started out relatively recent in the world's history or is this something that's been kind of persistent for a long period of time i don't know you tell me <laughs> there's no canon to this setting oh, um, yeah, i wanted to get to that about anti-canon so yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit yeah um it's uh i like to think of the world as like a living organism um mm-hmm. and so you know there's probably moments in history where the world grants these memories to people and they don't understand what it is mm-hmm. uh and so people describe it in different ways in different mm-hmm. places um there is a story mm-hmm. in the almanac about the quote unquote first weavers um but it doesn't place them in a specific time. Um, 
I like giving players the opportunity to say, this was a thousand years ago, or this was yesterday. Um, you know, whatever speaks to them. Hmm. See, I actually had a reason behind this, because the way you're describing, like, the idea of the the world having a memory like as soon as you said that like way back at the start of the episode like almost an hour ago the first thing it brought to mind was a science fiction novel called bios which is very similar in premise in that basically it's a what if scenario of what if every time like cells divided they retained the memory and they could basically transmit the memories to each other in a in almost a psionic fashion so like mm -hmm. the entire planet itself becomes aware and like if you swat a fly all other flies now know that you swat flies in fact all other flies now have any new fly that gets born basically evolves with that information in hand. So it goes to this ridiculously rapid evolution process of where, like, if you have, like, an acidic compound that's, like, eating away at, like, um, armored doors to your base, it's like, okay, well, we, we're not supposed to be here. Like, humans just kind of went down to the planet they build up like a base to study it and it's like it's almost like the planet is actively trying to kill us yeah and it's like not quite it's just everything from like the insects to the microbes everything is remembering everything you do so mm -hmm. if you use fire to torch one species a completely other species also develops fire resistance just because they all are aware at the same time that you've been using fire to kill stuff. Yeah. And it's like this kind of idea of this global memory, like the actual planet itself is alive in its own sort of way, mm -hmm. is it's a very similar setup. Well, That's not really entirely, but it reminded me. Yeah. No, it's 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 interesting, like the idea of like um I don't know if I've talked about this on Twitter or elsewhere, but uh, it's the it's kind of the idea of you think you're alone, but the world is watching. Not like not like the public or like society, but like the physical world around you is also aware of what you're doing, um, even when you think you're in a completely private moment. Um, mm. So it's like, yeah, if you swat that fly. You might think that you're alone in your house, but your house saw you do it. The trees outside your window saw you do it. Ceiling cat is the ceiling. Oh no! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> now that'd be an interesting. Okay, so that's that's the time time cat's bad guy. Is uh, <laughs> it is the ceiling? It's the giant cat above all of us. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Don't do that. Please. That'll be awesome. 
Uh-huh. Give us a hundred thousand dollars, and yeah. we'll make the ceiling cat the uh, adversary. <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. First, folks, that uh, ceiling cat is now the de facto bad guy in time cats. Yeah. <laughs> May Lord have mercy on our souls. <laughs> uh, oh, just yeah. in time cats, not in all versions of. <laughs> well, there is a giant ceiling cat outside everything, Cavwar. Duh. Well, yeah, that's it's just obvious. the edge of the universe. Like the, the the envelope of the Big Bang is just a giant ceiling cat. Fantastic. That's uh, yeah, that makes sense. Kind of unnerving, especially like you know, not just like the Santa Claus effect of he sees you when you're sleeping, he sees you when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. And it's like okay, that's kind of unnerving to begin with, but then it's like the whole phrase like ceiling cat watches you while you masturbate and it's like oh no you really want to have the omnipotent you know what though ceiling cat doesn't judge (laughs) you know ceiling cat's not bound by by human rules of decency you know Mm -hmm. ceiling cat's been been, been licking its own junk for a while I think yeah. So it, no. yeah, it doesn't it, stop it from doesn't make it better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the game we were talking about. <laughs> this is this is by the way totally totally typical for our yeah yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure people were wondering how why it was going so well up until this point. <laughs> um, in, in the interest of keeping it a little bit more on the game, uh, D, I, I know some of our audience are are. Um, designers that are early in their career for um, the RPG scene. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your process in getting to where you are now with like a Kickstarter that looks like it's doing really well and, and obviously getting some success and uh, a bunch of backers. Um, what were some of the things that you found to be most successful for you getting to this point? Like what, what advice would you go back in time and give yourself to like, I should have done this sooner or earlier? Um, what, what would you say to your, your uh, earlier version of yourself to, to get uh, a head start on? That's a, that's a big question, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. We did an entire episode about it. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, the, the tabletop space is a very challenging space to be in. Um, in a lot of ways, it's really easy to get into. Like, you can just create a page mm-hmm. on itch.io and just within 45 minutes put up a PDF of a thing you wrote and put it up for sale, and then people can see it and buy it. Yep. Um, the, like, the, the barrier to entry has never been lower, I don't think. Right. Um, which is wild. So, like, if you're if you're listening and you're just starting out and you haven't published anything, that's okay. Um, but I do want you to know that, like, the process of setting up a store page on Itch is it's a like it's an amazingly uh, straightforward process, at least in compared to some other places that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like I I I. I came from the video game industry and uh i can't legally say the things that i feel about steam's back end 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we, uh, uh, my partner and and I and our company just were navigating that like two months ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, you you kind of go like, why is it like this? Shouldn't it be easy? Like, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, like because you you see it for the first time, and you're like, wait, everyone has to go through this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people hire a dude like somebody just to handle that part. Like, oh yeah, that's that's a job at. Some companies like, yeah, we just that's our Steam guy. Mm -hmm. They just handle all the Steam stuff. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I would hate to be that guy, by the way. I never want to be hired. <laughs> I, I I was that person at oh, Beamdog no. for like oh, four wow. years. Yeah. Uh, it would be like launch day on Baldur's Gate. <laughs> it was like, all right. Oh, we need icons. Oh, we need banner images. Oh, we need this and we need that. Uh, yeah. It was, it was like a four hour process and we always forgot. That it was something that was going to take four hours every single time. <laughs> Itch is so much easier, so much easier. Oh my gosh, yeah. uh, I, it's like in in a lot of ways also like because I can't. I I spent four years in the video game industry before doing tabletop. Like mm -hmm. I have a lot of experience there. So like, there's a lot of like gradual lessons that I've learned. Right. Um, that it's hard to like pin because I didn't learn them the hard way, you know. Right. I think uh, what I would say is if you're going to do a Kickstarter for the first time, set your goal low. Um, mm -hmm. Do it for a small project that you know you can do either way and just use it as like a pre order platform. Right. Um, I did not do that with mnemonic i was like i've got a team of a dozen people and i want to make sure that everybody gets paid for all the words that we write and all the pictures yeah. mm -hmm. that sand draws um and i'm like i'm pleased that we're going to get our funding but uh it's a little bit lucky that we did <laughs> get to this yeah. point yeah, well, you've got some, you have some really, one of the things I think that help is really helping you right now, like in particular is like the strength of the writing and the strength of the art right now. And, yeah. you know, like the art is really doing a nice job of um, conveying the feel you're going for. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's a, a number, I've seen a number of I mean, you know, I've been looking at Kickstarter for years now and like I've seen like a number of RPGs that are kind of like, oh, this should be, this is like kind of an interesting idea, but there doesn't seem to be like an investment on the part of the creator from it. You know what I mean? Where there's, there, it's like some bad pencil art or something where um, it looks kind of still like it's on the back of a napkin, so to speak. <laughs> and, 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 you know, having the art up front and showing people like hey this is what we're prepared to do i think goes a long way towards um getting people over the hump of that initial um maybe higher higher backing threshold where where you know they know they're going to get a bunch of good art produced and you they know another thing that i really appreciate appreciate about your kickstarter is how um you are making sure that the artists and so forth are getting their due as part of the backing project. It's not just going towards product, but like one of your one of your stretch goals is, hey, we're going to be able to pay everybody who's working on this game more. 
you know? Yeah. And so I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, just from a personal standpoint, but you know, it helps people um, know that their money is being spent wisely once they give it to you. So mm -hmm. kudos. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, we're all underpaid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, sadly I, true in the game industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's weird, right? In a multi-billion dollar industry, like writers, artists, like everybody's just like, yeah, I make this much. And then there's a producer that's making like order of magnitude more. And it's not just the producers. It's usually like at this point, it's usually things like HR and legal departments. Like yeah. it's usually everybody who isn't building the game is the, <laughs> the people that are building the game are actually getting usually paid very little. So putting that kind of a stretch goal yeah. in, I would actually personally advise like just mentioning it to people that it's not just that this is sustainable for their careers. It's that this actually ensures that they'll be able to keep, you know, making more content for people because yeah. if you want somebody to make games for you, it helps if they can actually, you know, survive making the game yeah. and then they can <laughs> devote more time to making the game instead of this being a second or a third job, in which case they can't spend much time on making the game. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fortunate thing is that like Sin, our artist, who is fantastic, um, they, they set their rate and we, we kind of like talked through it and talked through what that meant. And we settled on a rate that was like, okay, I don't want you spending more than like an hour per illustration. Right. Um, and then they produced this like gorgeous, like Kingfisher uh, that you can see on like the banner image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like they produced this like beautiful Kingfisher and Fox uh, characters, like as like a single piece in an hour. And I was like, <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> and you still feel like you're getting away with something right yeah yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. like we are all we are all underpaid yeah. uh, and yeah. underappreciated right. in this space um yeah, and the thing with the artists yeah. on that though as well is that you're paying for their skill as well yeah. to be able to produce something that good that quickly but yeah, yeah. there are some artists that I've known that they'll have like a full working animation in an hour. Yeah. It's like, this is a 20 second animation. What? what? <laughs> How? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, like even, even the guy that I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm working with, with ashes is like, I feel like I'm underpaying him. Like the, like the results I get back are like, yeah, I, I, you know, I would like, I would let gladly pay you double this if I could afford it. But like, right. you know, I mean, he's pricey already, but like, it's the thing is still like, I feel like I'm getting way more of my value, you know, for the money. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. and, it's, and it's like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it, I, it's very highly probable that I'll do something like follow the blueprint that you're setting out here where it's like, if we hit this stretch goal, then I can afford to pay the artist like, you know, exactly. double or, or, you know, 50% more or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's just a note that I'm taking like as a direct, 
I'm just going to steal that. Like, mm, go for it. it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like you're not stealing it from me. A bunch of people have done it yeah, before right. me. Um, the the trick, and I guess going back to like the question of like advice, mm-hmm. um, I put together a budget in a spreadsheet, mm-hmm. uh, and I just said, okay, here's everybody's rate. Here's uh, here's how it all adds together. Here's the buffer that we need to make sure that if there's like surprise expenses, right. uh, that we can cover yes. it. Um, and then I just I punched in the numbers, and that's what spit out our our goals, just like our base funding, and then each of our stretch goals. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's very little margin uh, at the top of each of those numbers. Um, so I'd say like if you're out there and you're thinking, oh, I should do a Kickstarter do your budget first. Because um, like, mm-hmm. if you're looking at your at the art for Ashes and you're thinking, ooh, I want to do a stretch goal where I can pay my artist 50, 50% more, Like, if you put that into a spreadsheet, it's super easy to say, oh, we need to raise like this number of dollars to do that. Um, it, just, it makes that calculation a lot easier. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's another thing that... I- I, I personally like to hear as somebody who's backing a Kickstarter is like, oh, this guy did a spreadsheet with his budget. Okay, great. <laughs> like, yeah. Because for sure, for sure, I've been on Kickstarters where that was not the case. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you're like, oh, you know, we're getting the six month update. And you're like, yeah, we ran out of money and uh, we need you to pay $40 for shipping because we said that was going to be included. But turns out, yeah, no, we spent it on this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, you didn't do a budget before you ran this and like when you triple funded your goal like that wasn't enough or what happened yeah. like you guys can't do math what's going on yeah gotta do your budget yeah. yeah okay that's a good advice it's not it's not just doing your budget it's actually sticking to your budget too yeah. because that's another big one is feature creep has a really bad habit of showing up on kickstarters because many game designers doesn't matter if it's like a tabletop game or a video game like a lot of them they're used to either working under a producer who tends to keep things kind of on budget mm-hmm. and then the first time they're on their own it's like it might be some completely famous person they get millions of dollars because everybody knows like this person's name it's like oh my gosh, this is the person who made like this epic game series and then you give them the money and it's like, yeah, so they didn't have a producer to control what that spending went towards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we made like so much extra money. So we started, you know, drinking gourmet coffee at the office and turns out that's really expensive. Yeah. (laughs) Mm-hmm. um so 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 one of the things that um one of the things that when i was looking at through your uh, h.io page and then when uh weaver's almanac popped up and what prompted me to uh, reach out and, and talk to you is like there's parts of this um that converge on uh, design that we've been like I've I've been doing like like your structure is very similar to how I structure ashes although it's not so I have a I have a guide role and I have um, a way that it it sort of does how your structure is where there's like an opening 
And then there's one phase of the game, which sort of develops the world. And then some part of that phase falls to a crisis. And then the players resolve the crisis. And then there's um, sort of not really cleanup, but it's like an interlude where the world uh, reacts to what went on in the crisis through mm -hmm. a procedure. And then you start you start over with another, you don't do another opening, but you do another um, exploration yeah. sort of interaction phase. Um, and I have those bracketed in a certain way. I mean, it, I don't have them bracketed by session. Like it's a little more organic when mm -hmm. one stops and one starts, but I, I, I've been trying to address that problem because one of the things that, um, one of the things that prompted me to address that problem besides just like not wanting to run pre-made adventures as a thing um, was the way Blades in the Dark got away from the pre-made adventure was by having this, this up-down cycle where yeah. there's like, um, okay, we make characters and then we sort of like do the world and then we do a heist and then we do downtime and then heist yeah. and then downtime. And like for me, the campaigns of Blades in the Dark that I've run, um, they work really well up until about session like six or seven. I was just going to say six or seven sessions in, yeah. Yeah, and, and then it kind of like the players want to do other stuff. And it kind of like Blades in the Dark can handle it, but the 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 up down structure doesn't doesn't work all that well for bracketing what the players are trying to do anymore. Yeah. And so for Ashes, for me, the way its current structure is kind of a reaction to that, where I want a little more, bit more organic flow between those two parts, where if the players want to engage more in sort of the, um, for lack of a better word, setup stuff you know they're interested in discovering the world and interested in like oh how does this group react to this group and and stuff like that well, how do they interact whether relationships here um and how do they affect us like i give you know it, it i have a um, sort of a hard mechanical bracket on that where it's like you've done so much now you have to let the world react because you're out of time for doing things sure um but the more organic let's do the pacing as mechanical story beat type things like it was something that really like resonated in terms of like how you structured yours and i really appreciate the way you bracketed them into different almost game styles yeah um yeah I, so that was pretty interesting um and then you've already answered your question about like how that evolved so that was, that was pretty cool for the um for the cards so mark's game uh praxis uses cards as like a development tool and and they're the characters as well which is pretty interesting what was your inspiration for getting the cards into the into the um, the into the gray thing? Um, do you want to know why I use cards in general, or why yeah, well, I use? Or was there an inspiration, or was there a particular problem you were trying to solve, or yeah? I was thinking of I want to design a game that doesn't require players to somehow acquire uh, a twenty-sided die. <laughs> okay fair um, enough yeah because because like D, &D uh you know you need a d20 a d10 mm -hmm. a d8 a d12 a d4 and four d6 uh i think a lot of people have or can find four d6 mm -hmm. uh four six-sided dice somewhere in their house in various board games that they may already have um but you can't get the the quote unquote the seven set the, mm. the d4 d6 d8 d10 d12 d20 uh and then the percentile die right. 
um, at like a CVS. Right. What right. you can get at a CVS is a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. And and so I was thinking, if I want to make this game approachable to people who don't have like a local gaming store mm -hmm. nearby, a deck of cards is a good way to give them that. Because um, you okay. can get a deck of cards pretty much wherever. So for, you so for you, the deck was kind of like an accessibility thing where it's like... Yeah. You know, and and for that matter, like you can get dice at like Seven Eleven or like CBS, right. like you said, yeah, yeah. you can just go down the game aisle, like, oh, here's some six sided dice, and in yeah. different colors too. You know, like you could probably right. get like half half the colors of dice that you have in the game. But like, so so for you, like that kind of using, and I believe uh, Vincent and Meg Baker have like similar reasons for using the D sixes mm -hmm. um, in, in Apocalypse World. Like I've heard that before, and then um, so that's yeah, that's interesting. So you went specifically for like. You know, if you've got this PDF, you don't have to be in any big city or anything like that with a game store within like, you know, 30 miles. You could just be like, oh, I've got deck of cards, six sided dice. We can go. Yeah. OK, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that was my early on decision. Uh, mm -hmm. That was like three. Three years ago, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very early on. on the, yeah. A lot has happened in three years. <laughs> um, what I what I like about the design that you've taken with it too is that um, where a D twenty would act, not only is it just an accessibility issue, but like uh, with a D twenty to get the kind of feel that you're looking for from the game, you'd need this reference table. You'd need to be able to go back to the book and say, okay, well, um, how did I get this um, this outcome? Like, let's look it up on this table. Uh, whereas once you get into your game, it seems like you would start to develop a t an intuitive understanding of what the, the suits mean, what the um, the face cards mean, um, and that this can just be something that's played completely um, as you're you're acting out the game. Once you develop that sense of, oh, okay, a jack means a rival, and that that kind of comes up more and more. You, you don't need the rule book present anymore where you would have with a couple of dice sense. Yeah. Right? That's a good way to think of it. You've, you've simplified the game in a way by, by using what the deck provides already um, and the associations that you make with these different suits and different numbers uh, to be able to, to tell a, a more compelling story with the, with the tools that you have. So um, I, I really like that as part of the design. It, it makes it much simpler to carry with you and share with people once they've gotten into the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if you want to talk about Praxis in relation to that, um, do you want to talk, can you talk a little bit to me about uh, sure, yeah. the drawing on cards? Yeah, so um, the inspiration for me was more from the tarot side, where I really liked the interpretability of cards. Um, yeah. So it's kind of this random draw, and you'd be able to pull a card and see, like, wow, this is uh, something that, that has all these different aspects that I can then tie into the game. Um, but the question is sort of like, can I, can I take that concept and apply it to a regular deck of cards where you write on them and create your own semantic? So if uh, our players really want a game that involves, um, I don't know, dragons, 
then you'd write dragons on one of the cards. And as it comes up in the course of the game, then this becomes the prompt for everyone at the table to try to see how this, this element, this theme fits in. Yeah. Uh, or it could be about misfits. And then you'd write that in the, in, on one of the cards. And now you kind of develop the sense of where the game is going as you're playing. Um, so the, that resonates to me with your design as well, where you've got these, for you, it's very much about the characters and the, the relationships that they have, uh, where you'd have this, this rival that comes up and they might come in these different scenes later on um, with like reference to the journal um, that you had, you'd keep track of everything. Um, but I wanted it all to be part of the cards. Um, so there's a little bit of a cost where you're marking up the cards now, but, um, but you, you have this like solid memory of where the game is and it lives in this deck of cards. That's really interesting. Um, and I, I, I completely agree. It gives you a, it gives you those like easy associations with what's on the cards and the, the deck becomes this memorable artifact of play. Exactly. Um, yeah. Going back There's to my theater training. Oh, sorry, about that. What? Sorry, just one thing I want to mention mm -hmm. is that there's a very interesting aspect of that. Like you probably noticed that people will spend a lot of money on Kickstarters. They'll spend money on dice. They'll spend money on dice towers and miniatures. They don't like spending money on the game itself for some reason, though. It's very <laughs> weird. <laughs> like they'll they'll go out of their way to like pirate a PDF, but they won't do that for anything else so if you actually have like a deck of cards it's like yes this is a bit of an expense but apparently it's an expense that players don't mind mm -hmm. it's like it's okay to throw away a whole deck of cards it's like you're buying a new deck of cards every time it's not really that expensive anyway you're like buying up a pack of used cards at like uh at a dollar store that was yeah, used in a casino once right but and it's like something it's powerful like... about uh, yeah the the physicality of it like i i have a hard time getting rid of miniatures when i've played that character with that miniature for like a campaign because there's, yeah. there's such an attachment to it for um and the same with throwing away a character sheet that like i i spent a year or two years with this character that's like i know that that memory is not there but it feels bad to throw away this this physical relic like the artifact um like d was saying and for me, just that was part of why I think those, those physical anchors are really important for the kinds of games. Um, and I love using things like the deck. In this case, if you're having the journal, like the the that creates such a, a cool tether to what the physical game is and the different dice. And so I, I love the the physicality of these kinds of games. Yeah. But what were you going to say, Dee, about your theater? Oh yeah. Uh... It reminds me of um, Meyerhold. Because mm. uh, Meyerhold, uh, for those of your listeners who aren't steeped in uh, deep uh, early 20th century uh, German uh, theater <laughs> practitioners, uh, Meyerhold developed a system called biomechanics uh, that would oh, allow yeah so yeah. It, it allowed actors to take on physicalities that you establish the meaning of a gesture once at the beginning of a performance and then every time that same gesture is used throughout the performance the audience has 
the same association uh, with that gesture uh, without having to have it explained to them. Right, so right. if you oh, say like, good. yeah, so if you say that like, okay, if I touch my forehead, that means I'm sad. And you like explain that in the moment at the beginning of the play, for the rest of the play, you can just touch your forehead and the audience will associate that with sadness. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, yeah they, they, they do that in uh, improv training. Like that, I, that's where I learned it from, where it was like, you know, you do a physical thing and that mm -hmm. that's the, your marker for, you can come back to that, you know, as sort of like a grounding point. And that, that's where I was like, uh, they, they instructed yeah. us to do that. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's hmm. giving yourself scaffolding to uh, bring the audience in. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, that's that's a really cool association. I wouldn't have thought of it. Um, the uh, it, it fits with the core concept of praxis, too, because for me, it's about the repetition of these actions, that you, you take something, you write it down as part of your character, as part of the card, and it's the, the recurrence of this action that builds who that character is as you play. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that fits perfectly with uh, with the kind of theme that I'm aiming for. So yeah, it's, it sounds awesome. Thank you. I like. Yeah, it. it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean I, you know, speaking as though I don't have, I don't, I haven't written the game. We've, we've obviously like worked, you know, helped out on it. But like, I, it was one of those things. Like, where the first time he broke out like the questionnaire and the card things, I like, I, we, it was fun and like, yeah. oh shit, this is actually something. This is really cool. Right. Yeah. And that was the f impression I got from looking at um, the mnemonic stuff too. Like instantly, I'm looking at this. I'm like, oh man, I actually want to play this. Exactly. <laughs> like, like I, it, it's not like, oh, this is because sometimes you look at a game book and you're like, oh, this has some interesting rules. This is kind of cool. I like what it's doing here. Oh, this has nice art. I really like how this is laid out. And sometimes you look at a game book and go, oh, I want to play this. This is neat. And then that's what that's the feeling I got from looking at at at, uh, at mnemonic was like, oh, I want to play this. Not like. And, you know, and just like, oh, this is, there's some stuff here that's like ashes or some stuff here that's like practice or like there's some cool ideas where we're converging on this idea of like having a little bit more structure, but within that structure, having less defined. Yeah. And, and yet, and, you know, we're all kind of like, I feel like there's a wave of games and creators that are all kind of like pushing this space as a re reaction to having like suboptimal experiences with D&D and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like, we're all like, yeah, but pre-written adventures, no, though. And and uh, it, there's a kind of like strange groundswell of um, sort of the, that anti-mega adventure that that has become like Watsi's like big Marvel movie release is like this mega adventure. It's like, I don't want to play through the same adventures like right. 500,000 other people. That's not like, that's not that interesting yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that we're all coming. We're all coming from different, slightly different places, different experience sets, like different game experience sets, and like all kind of like converging mm -hmm. on this. Like, oh, we need, we just need a structure that's just enough to get us to the next spot. But we don't want to say, in like uh, Douglas Adams called it, uh, rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. And mm -hmm. I think that's like the perfect way to phrase that. It's like, yeah, we got this. We have this hard, the hard beginning hard stop in the middle you mm -hmm, you figured out you know yeah and i like that in in mnemonic it's like it's like the into the gray thing is like immediately like ah yeah i get it gray okay so this is like undifferentiated 
it's yeah. all like one you know there's a unit like a, a dull unity to it and then like from the dull unity we're going to differentiate and put out pull out other stuff it's like oh this is interesting we're, you know we're looking at this card and this you know we're because you're drawing randomly from a deck you as a player you kind of have an intuition of possibility uh, but you don't you still don't know what's going to happen and you there's an excitement in 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 just drawing cards right just seeing like yeah. oh this has and then like the second card afterwards and like what does it mean that this happened after this one and yeah so in, immediately when i saw this i was like oh, okay i can we can get i could probably convince three other people to play this like without yeah. too much trouble yeah so yeah yeah dope yep so i'm done fawning over the game for now <laughs> we'll resume when we pick it up and uh and get the the final product delivered because then we'll we'll be able to pour over all the pages and enjoy it so yeah yeah all laid out and artsy and stuff yeah, yeah. I, I love that part mm. um so in the interest of uh of wrapping things up um did you have any shout outs that you wanted to give um to some of the people that were on your team that you wanted to oh, yeah. to yourself self-promote um where can people find? Uh, yeah, uh, we've got a really great team. Um, just uh, we have a lot of uh, really great people on the team, and uh, life is difficult uh, sometimes, um, which means that a lot of our team hasn't been able to uh, do as much as they want to because they have to like live their life and like survive you know mm -hmm. um yeah so like that like a lot of the content that's been generated so far has been written by me and uh Sinziek and uh and ajay who's no longer on the team because he's working on bolt uh heads up for that coming in september um and so like there's there's like a whole lot of people like Ben and Brandon and Carl and Guanzan and Lexi and Liam and Nicholas and Pam uh and Vince who have not been able to devote as much time as uh they would like to because we don't have funding and so we can't pay them to like write stuff. Right. Um mm. so like all of the people on our team have uh I don't know if they all have itch pages, um, but they are all wonderful people um, and they're worth supporting. Um, I don't put their Twitter stuff on the Kickstarter page because the internet is an awful place sometimes. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, but support the project, um, pledge. Uh, any amount helps. Um, I would really love to get to that double everybody's rates stretch goal. Um, we're hoping to partner with Natural 20 uh, to create some gorgeous dice um, mm -hmm. if we get to 31,000, um, which would be fantastic. Um, but like my my dream is that, uh, gosh, what is it, 55K? Yeah. 5K, yep. Let's make it yeah, happen, people. Get, yeah, 55K. I want I wanted to do that. Um, <laughs> Abracadabra, as you speak it, so shall it be. Yeah. Absolutely. Make it happen. Yeah. Um, um, oh, one other thing that I wanted to 
give everybody a heads up on uh, community copies. Talk about that a little bit. I, yeah. I, that was, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. That's a good idea. Mm. Yeah. I totally forgot to bring it up. So here I'm doing it now. Go. Cool. Uh, so community copies, really briefly, I just added this to the FAQ on the campaign page because I somehow neglected to mention that anywhere mm -hmm. in the campaign page. Uh, community copies is uh, a pool of free copies of the game that anyone can pick up. Uh, no questions asked. So if you're struggling, you know, if you're if you've got a limited gaming budget and you want to check out the game, um, but you can't afford it this month, uh, those community copies will be there uh, so that you can just pick it up and it's yours. Um, and when you grab a community copy, like you own the game, it's it's like a free copy of the game with all mm -hmm. of the bells and whistles. Um, what's cool here is that we are partnering with a print shop in Croatia, uh, Printera, and we're able to get hardcover copies uh, set up through pre-orders so that we don't have to pay that cost oh, up front. Oh, awesome. Amazing. Uh, That's great. I was really yeah. hoping you'd be able to say something about that because I really like having hard copies of games. So yeah, if that's a thing that that we can do, that would be that'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Really anyone cool. anyone with a digital copy of the game will be able to order a print <clears throat> copy at very close to what it costs to print it and ship it. Awesome. Um, awesome. Uh, the cool thing about that is that that also includes anyone who picks up a community copy. Um, so if you get a copy of it for free and you want to buy, uh, if you want to order a hardcover version of the game, uh, you'll be able to do that at a very low cost as well. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Great. I think that hits all the points we wanted to get to. But that's, uh, yeah, no, I wanted to make sure we, we shouted that out because that's a thing, because at every pledge level you have, you have certain amount, you have, an, you know, you can pledge for more community copies and have more, you know, contribute to more people getting the game. And I think that's a pretty cool way to do it. Yeah, those are those have been popular. I'm looking at it now uh, to pull up. We are mm -hmm. at 1,421 community copies. That's wow. Awesome. So. Fantastic. Yeah. So what you're saying is basically there's no reason that someone should not check out Mnemonic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the core rules and the setting guide template are up on the Kickstarter page. You can look at them for free right now. Yeah. Go check them out, everybody, so, right now, the second. They're Do Google it. Docs. Yep. Read them. Read them. Comment. Well, or you can't comment, but you can you can check. You can leave a comment on the Kickstarter page. Oh yeah, definitely do that. Mm. Definitely do that. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm super excited about this project, D. Thank you for coming on and chatting with us for about it. Uh, I, I look forward to seeing the the final copy and uh, best of luck with the rest of the campaign. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It was it was really uh, really nice to have you on and uh, really cool to talk to you. And I'm I'm excited about this coming out. It's uh, it looks it looks really neat. Thank you. All right, Rob, take us home. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. Thanks. Uh, thanks for listening to Flo Yeah, I was I was waiting for Cat or Cavoir to say something, but okay. Oh, um, oh right. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, this, I don't know what you wanted me to say that wasn't already said. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> well, everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of Flail Forward. For Catrice, Cavoir, Mark, and myself, Rob, and for D. Thanks for joining us and good night because it is night where you are. Don't forget that. Good night. Good night. Better be your hey. else. Night.
night? Wait, it better be night where you are or else? Yes. Yes. That's a weird that's what so weird. <laughs> I have two members in the Philippines. <laughs> it's morning where they are. Oh, actually, one of my members guys is in the Philippines too. So it's like, yeah, I, 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 I we, it's always weird the meeting time. Uh, so I'm, like, I'm, I'm on a date. Oh, I forgot to stop the stream. Ha ha. <laughs> 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 good at this. Honest. We did. Uh, all right, and stopping the stream. We'll just leave that in the recording at the very end. Okay, good night, everyone. And then it just trails off into some story about the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's generally how our, how our streams go. We've. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, or not, we're not picky, leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and uh, and Pornhub. Because why not? Gotta go where your audience is, right? Good night, everyone. <laughs>